Welcome back to our study in the book of Mark and today we are going to be covering Mark chapter 8 verses 22 all the way to Mark 9 verses 1 and it's gonna be an eye-opening block of scripture that we cover today mainly because Jesus heals a blind man and so let's jump straight in Mark chapter 8 verses 22 to 26 they came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him um, he took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were open. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, Don't even go into the village. So now we're back in Israelite territory and we have this really strange healing encounter. And the main reason why it's strange is because Jesus took two attempts to heal him. The first attempt brought about a partial healing and it took to Jesus praying for him a second time for his sight to be fully restored. Now, one of the things about Mark's account is that it's meant to be a true account of the things that took place in Jesus' life. And so one of the things we can take away from this is that when we pray from pe uh, for people, we don't always have to see the healing take place at the first attempt. This was something that we practiced and taught uh, people who heal, uh, for, pray for, for healing for others at our previous church, where uh, after praying for the first time, we would ask the person for feedback on how they were feeling. So maybe if they came up because they were experiencing pain, we would ask them, uh, out of a scale of 10, where was your pain before we prayed and where is it at now on the scale of 10? And if they say, look, look I was at 7 at the start and now maybe it's more like a 3, uh, we wouldn't just go, oh, wow, okay, cool, the healing has taken place. No, we would actually say, oh, awesome. Can we just pray one more time and just uh, see if we can uh, ask God for a full healing right here, right now? And then we would pray for the person again and sometimes we would see a full healing. We were just following the pattern of scripture that we see that Jesus took two times uh, to pray for full healing. So why do we always expect God to work on the first attempt? But anyway, more than just this whole uh, example that Jesus is giving to us, why did Jesus need two attempts? Was he simply trying to set an example for us today? Or is there something more taking place? Now, I believe that that the, the author of, of this gospel, of Mark, uh, Mark, he would have taken these different accounts and the, the teachings and interspersed it with accounts because the accounts were showing truth about scripture. And so we need to look back a little bit, just a little bit for the, to last week's session. In Mark 8 verse 17, Jesus speaks to his disciples and he says, Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do, do you have eyes that fail to see and ears but fail to hear. He was rebuking them about the whole, uh, the yeast of the Pharisees and, and Herod and how the disciples thought that he was talking about literal bread. But Jesus was saying, no, 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 I'm talking about something so much deeper, so much more important. Do you not understand? It seems that Mark would use this miraculous event as a commentary on the blindness of the disciples. 
You see, Jesus took this man who had been brought to him for this healing, took him aside, which is often a sign that Jesus was going to have this one-on-one encounter. He wasn't using this person for his glory amongst everyone else. He wanted this person to have this personal uh, uh, account, this personal experience with him, more like a disciple. We can probably see this man as an example of the disciples. And because this man did say after the first a prayer um, that he could see people that look like trees walking around. We obviously know that this man understands what a person looks like, what trees look like. And we can therefore conclude that at some stage in his life, he once had sight. Much like all of us as disciples, we are created in the image of God and we have this internal compass that allows us to know and understand the things of God. However, through sin, we are made to be blind and Jesus comes to restore our sight. He brings healing. And so the question is, are you going to stop at a partial restoration of sight? Are you going to go, that's good enough for me. That will allow me to get by in life. At least I won't be bumping into things. That is all that I need from Jesus. I know that for a long time in my personal life, having grown up with um, a Christian family and gone to church very regularly, I thought I knew enough about Jesus. And I was frankly quite happy with partial sight. I thought that I knew enough about Jesus to get by. And then I could just have my life and do things my own way. However, I quickly learned that even though I had partial sight, it was not good enough. I was still not getting through life. I was not, I was managing life. I was surviving in life, but I really wanted all that Jesus had for me. I need to constantly be coming back to Jesus. And that is when my sight is truly being restored. Are you going to stop at partial sight? Are you going to allow Jesus to bring full restoration of your sight? Let's read on. Mark 8, 27 to 33. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. In the Gospels, we find this to be a very pivotal moment. When Peter identifies Jesus as the Messiah plainly, Jesus then begins to predict his death. These predictions are sometimes called passion predictions. You know, the passion of the Christ. The word passion has its root in this willingness to die. And and so Jesus predicted his willingness to die because of the mission, because of the cause that he was sent to earth for. And we find three passion predictions in the book of Mark, and each of them follow this specific pattern. Jesus predicts his suffering and death. His disciples will misunderstand this prediction and Jesus will then correct the misunderstanding. So in this passage, following Peter's confession, 
that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus plainly speaks of what is to happen to him. This is a rare occurrence because Jesus often spoke in parables. When it says, and so for him to speak plainly, it clearly wants the disciples to understand what needs to happen. He is teaching them plainly and clearly so that there would be no misunderstanding. And when it says, when Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer, the word must has uh, this meaning of being absolutely necessary. This is absolutely necessary. His suffering is absolutely necessary. And he was using this language very plainly for the disciples to hear. And as he was doing so, Peter obviously doesn't get it. And so he rebukes Jesus. The man he has just confessed to be the Messiah. He then takes him aside and says, this is not how things are supposed to work out. As though he understands the mission of the Messiah better than the Messiah himself. At a deeper level, this speaks of the partial sight that Peter had. In this moment, he had the partial sight to be able to recognize the Messiahship of Jesus, but yet not fully understand what the Messiah was sent to do. He thought that he still knew better. And in so many ways, this represents so many of us probably all of us, that when we come to Jesus and we have encounters with Him, we see Him healing, we see Him doing crazy, amazing things. We hear about His sacrifice on the cross. We hear about the resurrection on the third day. And we go, wow, thank you, Jesus, for your grace. And we receive that grace. But that is only a part, a partial portion of the fullness of what Jesus is doing. And when we see Jesus doing something else, we go, no, that's not what the Messiah is meant to be doing. That's not what my Savior is meant to be doing. If, if Jesus, you've really saved me, then what is all this suffering about? Jesus, if you've really brought me freedom, then why do I have this debt? Why do I have all of these hang-ups and all of these things that I struggle with? Jesus, if your grace is truly sufficient, then why is it that I feel so empty? Why do I feel so weak? If your strength is supposed to be enough for me, why do I feel like I'm unable to overcome? And we have this partial sight. And we require the Messiah to continue to bring the fullness of sight to us. We need to understand that the Messiahship of Jesus is not necessary, is not necessarily to follow our plans. It's not to follow how we think it's supposed to be. And Jesus, in speaking to Peter, he says that you have... Uh, the, the, your mind set on worldly things. You have human concerns and not the concerns of God. Partial sight is where we have this revelation of Jesus, but we link that vision and revelation of Jesus to our human concerns. A fullness of sight takes the revelation of Jesus and is able to then see God's concerns. 
That is the fullness of sight that Jesus is offering to us. And when we think about this restoration of sight and how this man that we read about, he originally had sight, that's also a very important point. Because when Jesus was actually sharing to the disciples about how he must suffer and die and then rise again on the third day, these are not new things to the disciples. He was drawing on the prophets from Israel's scriptures, or what we call the Old Testament, but really the Israel's scriptures. Isaiah 53, Psalm 118, Hosea chapter 6, Ezekiel 37. These are all, all passages that these disciples had heard time and time again when they went to the synagogue. And yet when Jesus was speaking it out, they went, nah, no, does not does not work, does not compute. Jesus was bringing them back to original sight, God's concerns, God's plans, God's intentions. And that is what we need to understand as modern day Christians. When Jesus is bringing us back to original sight, yes, I talked about how we are created image of God. We probably have some kind of moral understanding and compass that God has created us with, but we also have original truth written in the Bible. We need to explore the Bible. We need to study the Bible. We need to come back to the original intent of what God is trying to do. We're not meant to read the Bible according to our human concerns. We are meant to read the Bible according to God's concerns. That is when it becomes true sight to us. That is when it illuminates our path. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. If we want to see that come into fruition in our lives, we need to read the Bible with God's concerns, God's heart. That's when we truly understand and we are not just seeing people walking around like trees. So Jesus corrects Peter's misunderstanding about this messiahship and, 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 and Jesus' passion and where it's going to lead him, saying that, hey, there's a God concern here. This is important. And then he goes on to elaborate on that point in Mark chapter 8, 34, to chapter 9 verse 1. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when He comes in His Father's glory and the holy angels. And He said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. This is full, clear sight teaching here. And it's difficult teaching. It really is. I can see why sometimes it's so much more comfortable to stop at partial sight rather than to be given full sight. We love the healing of the sick, the feeding of the multitudes, the raising of the dead. Yes, yes, yes. If you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself and take up your cross. No, no, don't like that. See, note that at this point, Jesus calls to the whole crowd that they are there. And he speaks to all of them. Normally the plain teaching is reserved for the core disciples, but this is obviously important enough for Jesus to put out to everyone there. At the same time, the disciples, the core disciples, the 12, would have been placed back in the crowd as though that this is actually a teaching that will require them to make a choice. 
Remember that Jesus brings about this, this uh, division, this sense of uh, you need to make a choice here. The revelation puts forward a choice. And this is the choice that whether if we want to follow Jesus, it means denying ourselves and taking up our cross. Or we can continue to pursue the will the way that we always have. There is a decision that needs to be made here. Now, to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus fully. I have heard teaching about this when it says that take up your cross. It actually refers to Jesus' cross and, and how Jesus died for us all. And so the cross is for us all. And so to take up our cross is to take up Jesus' salvation that is readily available for us. Jesus is not calling us to suffer. Well, you know what? That's a really bad interpretation of the text, especially considering the context of what Jesus said here. You see, for the crowd there, the cross represents punishment for insurrection against the Roman Empire, and it's also reserved for the punishment of slaves. When Jesus uses this language of taking up your cross, it would seem that he is saying, for you to follow me, you cannot live according to what the world teaches. Remember, that's a shade of the whole idea of not of being a, uh, a wary of the yeast of the Pharisees and, the, and, and Herod. Do not take on the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. Do not live according to what the world teaches. You need to be okay with being seen as different. You need to be okay with being punished for being different. You need to be okay with being seen as a slave, as lesser than, which really goes against our Western culture. You know, partly is because Christians are seen as the ones that are... Uh, uh, you know, well, Western civilization was built on Christian morals and so Christianity wasn't a down and out. And we were given this opportunity to, uh, to pursue our dreams and to generate wealth and all of that. And to be seen as slaves for the gospel, to be punished for our beliefs, really? Is that what the Christian life is about? Yes. Look at how Jesus explains this. You want to save your life, you'll lose it. You lose your life for the gospel, you'll save it. Here Jesus plays on this idea of a temporary and eternal aspect of life. There is the short term and then there is the eternal. If we want to save our temporary, we will lose it. We, we cannot save our temporary life. But if we let go of this temporary life and use it for the kingdom, then Jesus grants us, brings us eternal life. We lose this, we gain this. We try to save this, we lose it all. That seems to be what Jesus is teaching here. Maybe a question to help you reflect on this is, what do you seek to gain that actually is temporary? What do you hold on to that you believe is going to save you, but really has no power to do so? For example, some might believe that achieving, finding that full-time job with a decent pay is what is going to set them up, is going to save them. Or maybe that romantic relationship, finding a person that will complete me. Or maybe a certain lifestyle where you're able to travel across the world and experience all that the world has to give because God has given us the world for enjoyment. Maybe when I get to that place, maybe that's where I have saved my life. That dream, that goal, God has created me to enjoy. 
or maybe it is to find accolades and, uh, and affirmation of, of the crowds, the masses, and to become an Instagram influencer, to become known across the world for something, to, or, or maybe even to some extent in today's world to be an activist that seems to stand for something to be recognized, to be standing for something. If that something isn't God's kingdom, maybe that's not it. You know, the coronavirus pandemic really has taken away a lot of, of, of the ability for us to base our faith on anything that is temporary. Many people lost their jobs. Many people lost their lifestyles. We are... And many countries are locked down. We're not going to be able to travel for a while. We, we have been severely challenged by this crisis, but perhaps in a good way, it brings us back to what is important. Is What is important? And another question is, how are you surrendering these things to take up your cross? This question is still relevant for us. It's not just taking up Jesus' salvation. It's saying, I am willing to be punished for my beliefs. I'm willing to be made to be ashamed in today's world in order to bring, bring God glory. And the truth is, holding on and living out Jesus' words will cause others to look down on you. And maybe you will face difficulties and trials and moments of, of doubt. On, on how God's going to come through. And yet, that is the disciples' lot. Holding on to Jesus, having faith in Jesus, despite what the world looks like. Now, this sounds a little like earning your way into the kingdom, though, doesn't it? It doesn't sound very gracious. Well, this is how I understand it. When I truly accept Jesus not just as my Savior, but as my Lord, then the way I show my faith is in the way that I live. Remember, faith without deeds is dead. My faith in Jesus is going to be shown by how I live. For example, me saying that I love Beck, my wife, is not enough. I live in the way that demonstrates my love for her. And if I believe and I really say that Jesus is my Lord and my Savior, that, and I believe that Jesus truly is the way and the truth and the life, then everything else that I used to think brings me life has to go. Because it is now a counterfeit. I cannot say, I believe that Jesus is the only way, truth, and life, but I'm going to hold on to my job. Jesus is the way of the truth in life, but I need that relationship in order to feel complete and whole. That's not how it works. If Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, remember Jesus divides. He doesn't allow you to hold on to both hands. He says, you need to grab on to this. Then I need to stop chasing security in any of those worldly temporary things and put my full hope in God. This is the sight that Jesus wants to restore to us. It's not an easy sight. It takes surrender. It takes courage. It takes faith. But I think when we have our sight truly restored by Jesus, it's kind of, well, this is the truth and this is the way it is. All those things cannot save me. Jesus is the only way, 
the only truth and the only life. Come, let me just pray for you. Dear Lord, I, I, I know that sometimes it's not easy to listen to your teaching and to really take it for what it says. To follow you, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross. It sounds really hard and it sounds really intense and, and it doesn't sound very gracious, but God, your grace is there. Your grace is showing us the temporary and the useless nature of pursuits in things that are temporary. So God, I pray that we have the courage to take that leap of faith and to trust that you have life and life to the fullest. And we're not just talking about the temporary life we have here on this earth, but also eternal life. I pray that we will pursue that with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind and all of our strength. I pray that you restore sight to us. I pray that we will not hold on to just a partial healing, but to go for a full restoration of sight. Thank you, Jesus. I pray this in your name. Amen. Make sure you head into your lift groups as we discuss uh, this, this passage. There's a lot to discuss, there's a lot to share. I hope that you're going to be making it to one of the lift groups this week.